The unpredictability of the world means you are free to do whatever you want. I believe that the opposite of depression, it's not happiness, it's purpose. I believe that every single person has something unique to contribute to the world. And that's why I wanted to create a show called Don't Keep Your Day Job. Don't Keep Your Day Job is about figuring out what it is that you were here to do in this world that only you can do to make the world more whole, more beautiful, and to stop selling yourself short, and to stop sitting it out, and to figure out how to take this thing you love, whether it's art or music or screenwriting or dance or baking, and how do you weave this thing that you love into a life that you get to contribute, that you get to do what you love full time, because it's not just about business, it's about contribution, it's about meaning. That is what we seek that is what we truly want and you absolutely are here to serve the world and I want to help you figure out just how much value you have inside of you and every single week we're going to be talking to people who have something to add to help you get out of your own way to help you be more successful to help you be the truest expression of you my name is Kathy Heller I'm so glad that you're here let's dive in Thanks to Bombas for supporting Don't Keep Your Day Job. Bombas makes socks that are comfortable and look great for whatever you need with a wide variety of options. For every pair of socks you purchase, Bombas donates a pair to someone in need. Get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com slash dreamjob. Also, thanks to Grammarly. Grammarly is the digital writing assistant that helps more than 20 million people put their best words forward. Get 20% off Grammarly Premium when you sign up at grammarly.com slash dreamjob. Hey guys, it's Kathy. Welcome back to another episode of Don't Keep Your Day Job. I hope you guys had a good weekend. I posted on Instagram yesterday a video I was just sharing from my heart. I was just talking about how it just hit me the other day that this pandemic, that COVID, like all the stuff that's going on, I just I just realized like what if this isn't the only time? Like what if because of the way that we are treating our animal friends, because of the way we we treat the environment because of the fact that we're all running so fast and always working and trying to make money and we're just not taking the best care of ourselves, the best care of the environment. I just realized like, oh my God, like I just don't want my kids to grow up in a time where they're always wearing a mask because there's another virus or there's something else that happens with the ozone or with the ocean. And I thought to myself, I can't believe this isn't the only thing that people are talking about right now, how we need to come together. We need to come together and we need to use this as an opportunity for real growth to think about, you know, not just getting through this because we have to, but also like really thinking about sustainability, really thinking about not just what's sustainable for the environment, but for ourselves. You know, when you think about like, since the 80s with the cassette players and the first computers, like how quickly things have grown, how at the speed of light, you know, technology has just done so much and so much of it is so good. But on the other hand, deep down, I feel like every one of us has this need to feel like we are enough. And so we're constantly proving ourselves. We're constantly trying to achieve things. Everyone's, you know, trying to make as much money as possible and sometimes we lose ourselves. we lose why we're here and when you think about like all these viruses like this virus came from an animal and you know SARS and swine flu and Ebola and my friend Jenny says to me she's like Kath you know if we took better care of the animals and the environment you know and 
and of our own health. And it's just like, wow, like, I just feel like there's so much here. So I think we need to all just kind of take stock of that. And maybe just maybe, you know, we can use this for good. And I hope so. That's all. I just hope so. So that was on my heart this weekend. And I'm really so darn excited because today Malcolm Gladwell is here and he's so brilliant and he's such a humble, generous, funny, cool, interesting person. And uh, we're going to get right to it. After the interview is over, we're starting a new segment where I'm going to be answering your questions. And I've been having so much fun posting questions and asking you what's going on with you and then replying to questions on my Instagram. So if you have questions about your business, about getting clear about what you're here to do or anything, uh, come on over. You can follow me at Kathy.Heller and we can have more more of those conversations, but I'll read some of those answers at the end of the interview. So let's dive into Malcolm Gladwell because he's here today. So I'm sure most of you know that he is the author of six New York Times bestsellers. He's a TED Talk speaker, staff writer for The New Yorker, host of Revisionist History, which is his awesome podcast. He's co-founder and president of Pushkin Industries, and he's one of the most brilliant souls I think anyone's ever met. You probably read one of his books, The Tipping Point, Blink, Outliers, David and Goliath, Talking to Strangers. We're going to get into a lot of that in today's conversation, but we're also going to talk about how he started his incredible podcast, Revisionist History. It's a fascinating journey through the overlooked and the misunderstood. And I highly recommend that you go and listen because the fifth season just came out and they are exploring some really interesting topics like art museums, using the lotteries and elections, the troubled history of a Van Gogh painting, and just such cool stuff delivered to you like only Malcolm can deliver it to you. It's no surprise that foreign policy has named him one of their top global thinkers three times, and he's been on Time's 100 Most Influential People list. He has so much curiosity and wonder for the world. He has so much passion infused into everything he does. And I think because he finds everything so extraordinary, it makes him so interesting, so insightful. He's such an explorer of what this world is. I won't keep you waiting any longer. Without further ado, please welcome the phenomenal Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell, you are sitting here and you are such a special, unique human. Thank you. You're very kind. I'm happy to be on the show. Everybody loves you. All right. So I want to get into it because there's just so much. I actually can't believe one person has put out this much wisdom in your short amount of time you've been on the planet. But before we go there, I kind of want to know a little bit about you Tell me a little bit about you as a kid. Was there any inkling that you were super curious? Like, what was the seed of this for you? Oh, my mom had three sons and I was the third. And she says that I amused myself. She would leave me in my crib for hours by myself and I would be fine. So I don't know what that means, but that's one one thing maybe. And my, my father was, he sadly died three years ago, but... He was a, um, a man of great mischief, and he really took delight in the world and all of its... He was an eccentric Englishman. He never saw anything entirely in a straightforward manner. Everything was kind of... So I just kind of have taken after the great example of Graham Gladwell. He was a, a mathematician. You know, he's your classic absent-minded professor, <laughs> um, but he was incredibly modest, I always say about my dad, he was an expert in three things, 
mathematics, gardening, and the Bible. And on everything else, he was open to suggestion. You know, my dad had a PhD and whatever. His One of his best friends was a guy who dropped out of high school in our neighbor who dropped out of high school in like fifth grade. Yep. They would have these wonderful conversations because that was sort of the way my father operated. Anyway, I think, I hope I take after him. So that makes so much sense because right before we started recording, I said, the thing that makes me most intimidated about you is you. You have so much humility and that makes sense. Like that's his legacy. You are so that kind of person. That's the sweetest thing yeah. that you want to be because you are by every standard, like one of the smartest people that's walking the earth and you don't act like you're better than anybody. I would quarrel with the first, but not with the second <laughs> of those claims. <laughs> so that's so beautiful that we got to hear a little bit about your dad. I'm sure yeah. he was so stinking proud of you. I can't even imagine being your parent and what that feels like. It's like, oh my God, again, another one, that too. Okay. So then Going forward in your childhood, I read that you, this was surprising, that you like didn't get into like the best graduate schools and then you started pursuing advertising and you got a bunch of rejection and I'm like, no, that doesn't make sense. So tell us about that period of time and how you dealt with that. Oh, well, I had very specific interests in college. So I did very well in things I was interested in and not very well. I didn't really go to class. So there were real limitations on how well I could do, which I accepted. I tried to get a job in advertising but and failed. I think I applied to 20 different agencies. Oh my I got God. 20. But it didn't strike me as, as a judgment against me. I just figured, oh, I was very untroubled by these. I was 20 when I graduated from college. And I sort of felt like nothing matters for a while. Like, and I still think that's the right attitude. I was like, you know, there's an infinite number of things I can do. I can pro I'll probably like most of them. Yeah. You know, this was one idea, but it, I don't know, it didn't work out. And I, I had other ideas and, you know, I just kept on pursuing things. But at 20, one of the things that breaks my heart about young people sometimes is when they do think their entire future hinges on the decisions yeah. they make when they're 20. Yeah. And it, you know, it just doesn't. Yeah. It really doesn't. And that also really speaks to the same theme of humility because you don't hang your identity on getting this job or getting into this school. That makes sense why, you know, you have so many accolades and it's still like, oh, good, great. Like it, you're just very much going back to the kid in the crib is like, everything is a wonder and it's all kind of fun and you're just kind of happy to be here. That's so beautiful that you're not attached. I think so many of us are attached that our identity, we live and die by a rejection and you mm -hmm. don't. Well, you know, rule number one of a happy life is don't read your Twitter mentions. <laughs> <laughs> it's along the same lines. It's like you could make a simple choice just right. to focus on what your friends say about you, people you love say about you and what you're doing. And like, what some random dude in his basement thinks about you is why would you spend any time worrying about that? That's amazing. But like, how do you not, after you write your first New York Times bestselling book and it's a smash success, how do you not feel like, oh, this has to also be that. And if it doesn't, I'm going to feel like a loser. Like, how do you not get caught up in that? I mean, the way you don't is because you do it again every time. That's the thing. That's your trick is you just keep getting the same <laughs> degree of success. But it doesn't seem like you are being sort of pulled by that as like, oh, if it doesn't, you know, happen, I'm going to be destroyed. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not immune to this normal anxiety people have about how well the world is going to receive what they do. But I think the key is 
it's important that the process be fun yeah. and meaningful. And if the process is fun and meaningful or the process of getting to a completed podcast or book or whatever, then if it's a disappointment in its reception, you haven't lost. When I do a creative project, I think of it as like 80-20. 80% of the fun is making it. 20% of the fun is how the world receives it. And so it hurts if the world doesn't like it, but I still have the 80%. So I spend my time trying to fix the 80% part. That's what I can control. Like I'm, I'm going to name drop. Tomorrow, I'm going to Washington, D.C. to interview the chief of staff of the Air Force. For long, complicated reasons, I'm really into the Air normal. Force right now. It's a normal day. Yeah. Yep. You know, for a project, I don't know how the project will be received by the world, but what I know is this guy who's insanely cool and who said to me when I was setting up the interview, he goes, son, we got to get you airborne. <laughs> and like, I'm totally fascinated with planes. And the idea of going up in a fighter jet is like, literally, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me in my entire life. So I have that regardless. It's awesome of what happens to the book when it's done. Yeah. I had this experience. It's going to be fantastic. Yeah. And by the way, that is one of the secrets to your success, I believe, because when I talk to people, like my husband also, like me, is obsessed with you, obsessed. And I say, why do you love him? He goes, he's so enthusiastic that whatever topic he's talking about, he goes, he did this thing on country clubs. And like, why did country clubs have, he goes, I'm obsessed now with country clubs. I took a class at UCLA, which said that enthusiasm lights up so strongly in the brain. And that's what you do is everything is fascinating through your eyes. And then the world is glued because that's so infectious. So, okay. So talking about your work, a couple things. The first book I read of yours was, of course, The Tipping Point. And I remember being like, oh my God, this is so brilliant. So my audience is always asking that question. Like, what does it take for something to catch fire? How does my piece of content go viral? And you explain it so well. So on one foot, like, what is a tipping point? How do we get to that? And how can we walk toward it? Some things you can do. I mean, the book was meant to be a kind of partial guide to that process. But at the same time, we have to understand that this process is, to some extent, completely out of our hands. Mm -hmm. And lots of things, which is really an important point, because if you're the person whose thing hits, you have to appreciate that you were only partially responsible for that hit. Yeah. The world took over. I've been doing this project with a singer, Paul Simon, and he has this lovely riff about how popularity in music is a river. And sometimes you're riding with the current and sometimes you're not. Hmm. And it's nothing to do with you. Like some portion of your career, you're in the thick of things and everything's a hit. And you may continue to make beautiful, amazing music, but the river has flowed on without you. So I think that's the first thing. But the second thing, that book was a lot about the idea of social power, the kind of power that resides outside of hierarchies and money and I feel like since I wrote that book, the world has kind of really embraced that notion. But that idea that there is power that comes from economic status, there's power that comes from political status, there's power that comes from institutional status, but that's not all. There is also a whole other realm of things that comes out of relationships and the authenticity that people have in the world and the power of their friendships and... The beauty of their ideas. I mean, look at how, how Black Lives Matter how now stands at the center of our conversation about policing. I have written endlessly about yep. policing and police violence over the years. Yep. I take Black Lives Matter very seriously. I can't tell you 
who's running Black Lives Matter. I mean, I know the names of some of the people who are, yeah. but I don't have it. A, I can't tell you where they're based, how big their budget yeah. is, how yeah. none of that matters. Yeah. What matters is the idea that they represent is yeah. now at the center of our discourse. That to me is a beautiful example of what I was trying to get at in the tipping point. A hundred percent. And I was going to talk about it with you later, but it is fascinating that talking to strangers came out before this moment. And I mean, you were there a year ago, like anyone who read that book must have been like, oh, he, he was so on this topic. And then again, it just becomes like a tipping point. It's kind of amazing what happened with George Floyd, how that like broke everything open. Mm -hmm. So what makes that happen? Was it like why that and not talking to strangers? Or was it a buildup of all of mm -hmm. those things and continuum? I think there was a buildup. I think that that string of cases, high profile cases that happened beginning with Michael Brown mm -hmm. and Ferguson yeah. set the stage and pushed us a lot closer to the point where we were going to take this I don't think George Floyd has the impact of it does if we hadn't have had yeah, the lead up. those 10 cases in 2014, 15, 16. And I also think that, you know, we didn't have a lot of distractions, right? We weren't at work. We were That's at home. Interesting. We were online. We had a chance. Mm. It's usually so easy for us to dismiss even the most pressing things because we got to go to work at nine o'clock in the morning. Or we That's got a, so interesting. I never you know, thought that. I think that extended period of, of lockdown that we're in allowed us to focus. Wow. That's fascinating. Okay. So you have so much amazing wisdom. Another thing that comes up on the show all the time, I would say the number one thing that is in the way for people is overthinking, really. Mm -hmm. Like they want to publish this podcast, this book, they want to start an Etsy shop, they want to text this person and they just get stuck. And in Blink, which is one of my favorite books, how do you help people make decisions? Like when you want to overthink it, what have you learned is helpful in clarifying what we should do so we don't get mm -hmm. stuck? It's funny. There's a guy named Albert O. Hirschman, who is this legendary economist, one of the great economists of the 20th century. And he had this phrase he used called Hamlet was wrong. And by that, he meant that Hamlet was someone who was couldn't make a decision, right? To be or not to be, that is the question. And the fact that he didn't know what was coming paralyzed him. And Hirschman's big point was that Hamlin had it backwards, that once you accept the fact you can't know the future, that the world is inherently unpredictable, that shouldn't freeze you. It should free you up because all of a sudden, there's no such thing as the wrong decision, right? Once you accept the fact that I don't know whether my business is going to be a success or a failure. You can pretend you know, but every time you look at the world, you realize that half of the stuff that happens is totally a surprise to everyone and completely unpredictable in retrospect. So Hirschman's big point was, Hammett's wrong. The unpredictability of the world means you are free to do whatever you want, right? And I, it's funny, we we're talking about my dad before. My dad was a Hamlet is wrong guy. And at his funeral, my eulogy was all about Hamlet is wrong. That was the thing that guided every significant decision in his life. He married my mother, a black woman, in 1959. And if he had been Hamlet, he wouldn't have married her. He would have said, I don't know, is it the right thing? What's the world going to think? Am I going to be able to live where I want to live? I mean, my kid's going to be the victim of racism, blah, blah, blah. My dad was like, I don't know what's going to happen. I love the woman. I'm going to marry her. And he married her. And they had a wonderful, you know, he was that sort of person. And I think I've been thinking a lot about Hamlet is Wrong recently. And it's such a freeing 
notion. You know, like at a certain point, you just have to accept the fact that this belief we have that the future is knowable is crazy. If we had this conversation five months ago, six months ago, and I had said to you, the entire world is going to stop functioning for four months, you would have said, Malcolm, you're insane, right? Nobody knew this. So it's like, I think people need to feel, have the freedom to take more chances. Yeah, that's so beautiful that you really got that lesson from your dad so much so that you spoke about that in his passing. That's incredible. And look what it did. You're here because of that in 1959. It's amazing. I mean, the ripple effects of that. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the reason people don't want to make those choices is because it seems as though we're all trying to avoid pain. Like every time I get into it with people, it's like by the age of nine or 12, someone walked out, someone died, someone rejected them. And then there's this, I'm going to spend my whole life strategizing around like not being in pain. Like I don't want to fail. I don't want to. So that's part of it is we have to, I guess, be up for that, right? Like Mm -hmm. we might get Mm -hmm. hurt and that's hard for people. They want to have a certainty that that's not going to happen. There's a beautiful idea though in psychology called affective forecasting, which is this idea that the thing we are worst at forecasting are our emotional reactions to events. So we tend to systematically overestimate how happy good news will make us and also overestimate how unhappy bad news will make us. Right? So you think if you win the lottery, it's going to change your life. Actually, it doesn't. Mm -hmm. You also think, I don't know why we're talking about my dad, but in the week after my father's death, I would have said, I will never get over this. Yeah. Um, I did. It doesn't mean I didn't care for him. It just means that I found a way to, so it wasn't nearly as bad as I thought it was going to be. And the same time, you know, the success of my books, for example, does not make my life as better as I thought it might. It's just a kind of thing, you know. You so I think knowing that also should free people up to make sort of radical choices. Oh my God, that's so huge! And what do you think about that immediate decision, that gut feeling? Because especially in what's happened over the last few months, I feel like people's gut feelings are sometimes very wrong, right? Mm -hmm. But often they're very right. And reading Blink, I was like, oh my God, it's so true. Within four seconds, I like know what I really feel about this person or this idea. Like there's a feeling. How do we know to trust that? What if it is fear? Like how do you know how to discern that? I don't think trust is the right word. I think you should take that feeling seriously and think about it. It's not that it's always accurate, um, it, but it is. it does represent some bit of information about your own state at that moment. Mm-hmm. So to give an example, you're a, a white woman walking down a street and you see a large young black man approaching you. You may, I don't know, you may have a sudden stab of fear. Oh my God, what's going to happen, right? That's not something to trust. Right. It's something to interrogate. You should ask yourself, now, why am I having this feeling? Is this a representation of some hint of prejudice in my heart that I need to confront, right? Why is my response to this situation rational? Would I feel the same way if this person were white? Is it three o'clock in the morning in the worst neighborhood in the world, in which case anyone approaching you (laughs) is a problem? Or am I walking down Rodeo Drive at two o'clock in the afternoon, in which case I should chill, right? So take it seriously, 
but just investigate it. That's what our function, if you meet someone on a date and you're powerfully attracted to them, it doesn't mean you should marry them, but it right. does mean you should think seriously about what that is person, that? Yeah. right? It's not trivial yeah. if you have yeah. that feeling. Yeah. Okay. So probably one of the biggest topics on this show is like, what makes people successful? We've had all these millionaires, billionaires, successful authors here trying to unpack this. And Outliers is one of the best books I ever read. I'm sure most people who read it feel the same way. What was your biggest takeaway from that, from looking at what makes people high achieving mm-hmm. and what we can learn from that if we want to have success? I guess it was the advantages that propel us are very often things we're not focused on. So we tend to focus a lot about our own innate gifts and not enough about our position in society. Right. We chance things about the era, the generation we're born into, the, the unexpected opportunities <clears throat> given by um, our age cohort or whatever. I, I tried to identify stuff, you know, like I have a chapter on airplane crashes and the success of a pilot is powerfully bound up in the culture that pilot belongs to right? Nothing to do with you. Your national culture affects the way you make decisions in times of stress. And if you want to make better pilots and you're from one of those countries that has a problem, you have to address that issue. I just wanted people to broaden the list. If I ask you, why are you successful? I want you to give me 10 reasons, not two. That's really what that book was saying. Mm -hmm. 10 reasons, not two. And when you come up with 10 reasons, you will discover that you have a far more humbling account of your own rise than you do if you only have two. Yeah. I have a very good friend who you kind of made his whole life because he wrote you a letter and you actually wrote him back and (laughs) he couldn't believe it. So he's a TV writer. He created Third Rock from the Sun and a bunch of other shows. Oh, wow. And he, he loves you. And he wrote you about outliers. He said, there's a Jewish word called mazel, which stands for makom's man lasso, mazel. It's like an acronym. And he's like, that's your whole book. It's like right place, right time, but you have to have done the work so that when you're in there, and he he said, you actually wrote back and you were like, you're so right. That's crazy. And he he like framed it. He's like, you wrote me back. Oh my God. And when people say mazel tov, you know, they don't know what it means. Uh, They think it means good luck. But what it means is may you be at the right place in the right time and may you have done the work. So when you're uh, in the right place at the right time. Yeah the opportunity. And that was so amazing about your book. You're like, yeah, let's talk about Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. Yeah. Let's talk about the Beatles. Let's talk about what they had already done and then where they were. And people don't get it. They think it's all just like, you're the most talented person in the world. And I also, I feel like if my memory serves, I I read it when it came out, but you talked about kids who can talk to grownups, right? Like Mm -hmm. kids who have the ability. And I was like, when I was a kid, if I missed an orthodontist appointment, my mom would make me call the orthodontist at nine and say, I'm sorry, I missed the appointment. I overslept. And I always felt like that helped me so much. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Because I feel like so much in being successful is how you have that confidence to talk to people. I thought that was a really interesting point. Yeah. That notion that that was a part of the book where I was interested in these kinds of, what are some of the subtle things that parents do that help their children, that advance the cause of their children. And that was a big part of it, that we overlooked the extent to which sometimes that these kinds of social gifts that you use to navigate the complex world we're in are things that need to be kind of deliberately instilled in you by your parents. When I meet teenagers today, I am stunned at how much more articulate they are than when I was that age. When I was 16, I did not talk to adults. 
I was in my own little Insta world. Now, like 16 year olds talk to me like, you know, we've been hanging out for our whole lives. I'm sort of stunned, but that's what, we, what you're talking about. They have this leg up now. You know, it took me years to acquire those skills. And I feel like lots of kids today have them at some tender age. Yeah, that's true. And what do you think? I mean, this whole 10,000 hours thing, I feel like everyone quotes this from the book. Can you explain that a little bit so people understand what that means? Well, it was just an idea. It got sort of took on a life of its own that I wasn't entirely crazy about. But that notion was just that when you're doing something cognitively complex, trying to master a cognitively complex task, the process of mastery will takes more effort and practice than you think. It's not two years, it's 10 years. And so the model I, you think about is when someone goes into medicine and they do you know, years of medical school, then they're a resident, then they do a fellowship, and then they do professional training on an ongoing basis over the course of, the, of their entire careers. That's actually a really accurate model for the way everything that's hard works. You cannot walk out of medical school at the age of 25 and be a skilled brain surgeon. It didn't work that way. Yeah. And no one in the world of brain surgery thinks that could ever be the case. And when they look at worlds where we assume that's the case, they're like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Like, no one has ever been a successful point guard in the NBA who hadn't been playing point guard for 10 years. Like, this doesn't happen. Yep. So when you're judging whether someone's good or not at something, you got to give them time. Yeah. I don't know what can be said about a 21-year-old or 22-year-old or even a 25-year-old in almost any setting. You don't know anything yet. They would put in nearly enough time for us to be able to assess how good they are to give in task. Yeah. And that's such an important point because people compare their behind the scenes messiness to other people's highlight reel. And they don't realize that Serena Williams is like waking up at 4am hitting those balls like all day long, like they're putting in that time. Okay. So moving along. So one of the most important things that you talk about in David and Goliath is how adversity and setbacks can actually turn to something that is purposeful. That mm -hmm. is so important. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that was just an expansion of the Outliers book because I was just saying, you know what? It's not just the obvious advantages that put us ahead. It's also the case that sometimes disadvantages can be advantageous. But sometimes the process of coping with your flaws or your weaknesses can be a much more valuable learning experience than simply capitalizing on your strengths. I wanted to sort of complexify the argument in Outliers. So I was just, that book was really started because I kept on meeting incredibly successful business people who were dyslexic. And I met so many of them. I interviewed like 25 highly successful entrepreneurs who were dyslexic. And every single one of them said exactly the same thing, which is I am not successful in business in spite of my dyslexia. I am successful because of it. If you can't read, you have to work so hard at everything else that you end up further ahead. Yeah. Right? Now, that is if you're good at it. It is also the case that lots of dyslexic people are defeated by the prisons are full of people with dyslexia. Like it's a high risk strategy, but those who succeed mm -hmm. at it are ahead of the game. And that was, you know, by the 25th time you've heard that argument from someone who is started some massive business or someone who's been some insane success in their life, you begin to take it seriously. And that's where yeah. that book came from. That's amazing. I didn't know all of those details, but it's so powerful. And my father, he's deaf and he's a psychologist. And I know that he chose that because A, he had a lot of empathy for people who were struggling. And 
he also had something to prove. Like he wanted to prove he could spend his life listening. And mm. so he can't hear and he reads lips. And I'm like, why choose something so hard? And it's like, because of it, you know, it's really, really interesting. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Last question about your books. So Talking to Strangers, such an important book, especially for now. Every single person hopefully has it. If you haven't, you should be reading it. What is the thing that we should take away when talking to people, when we want those interactions to be successful, when we want to avoid pitfalls? What should we think about in interacting with people that makes it work? We should be aware of how hard it is to successfully interpret someone by observing their body language, facial expressions, affect. And we should, as a result, be really cautious in how we evaluate people. We, as human beings, we make so many mistakes in reading other people's emotions that at a certain point you have to say to yourself, you know what, stop. You know, if I'm talking to you, Kathy, I've never met you before and you seem a certain way, I need to stop and evaluate that assumption. Like if you seemed in this conversation to be distracted, one interpretation is you don't like me. Another interpretation is something horrible happened to you this morning, or your partner's in the hospital, or I don't know, your dog's dying. I don't know what it means. Or you could be yawning, and I assume it's because you're bored, and maybe it's because you got two hours of sleep last night because, you know, your baby was screaming. I don't know. Like, you could look distracted and be humming, but maybe that's just the way you focus, right? I'm someone who hums a huge amount. And everyone always assumes I'm humming because I'm bored. No, I'm humming. I hum when I'm hearing something that pleases me. You know, going back to my father again, my dad was a hummer. He and I would go out for long walks and we would just hum because we were happy. We weren't bored with each other's company. So if, if I start humming in this conversation, you'll know, but you only know that because I told you, right? If you were meeting me cold, you'd say, what is going on with Gladwell? Like, is he checked out? No, Gladwell's not checked out. I like to have theme music to my interest level. (laughs) It's so beautiful. I feel like what it really is about is like making space for people, like actually showing up and listening. Mm -hmm. And in this world, everything's so quick. And I had Brian Grazer on the show and I was crying hearing him say, he goes, Kathy, all of my success is one thing, having conversations with people where there's no agenda. Like I'm literally like, who can I meet this week and sit down with an astronaut and just be like, tell me everything. Like, what do you feel? Really? That's what you feel? I wouldn't have known that. That's what you love? Let's make a movie about this. Like, people don't have conversations. Unfortunately, it's so rare that people are saying, please just stop. Go into beginner's mind and just make space for someone. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what you're saying. And no one's doing that. Why don't we do that? Is it because we want to like save time? Is it because it's easier in the brain to like categorize people? Why can't we just do what you're saying to do? Why is that so hard? I think we create a lot of unnecessary deadlines for evaluation. So why do I have to have an opinion of you by the end of this conversation? I don't actually. I don't have to decide whether I like you or dislike you. You know, maybe I should wait until the fifth time we've had a conversation. There's no reason not to, right? So I feel like my big quarrel with, you know, in a job interview, you evaluate someone in 45 minutes, but that's really just because you can't spend seven hours. 
So we create this deadline. I got to make a decision after two interviews and hour and a half total. But that's not because we actually think we can make a good conclusion about you after 45 minutes. It's because we have to, yeah. right? And if we don't have to, then don't. Take your sweet time. That's, that's a lot of it. But also, I think we get a certain satisfaction in kind of checking the box. Oh, that person's a jerk, right? Then you can sort of move on. And I think you have to kind of fight that, that impulse. Yeah. I love everything you're saying, but before we keep going, let's just thank our sponsors. I'll be the first to admit that I'm not perfect when it comes to grammar and spelling, but I know these are important factors when you're talking with your team online or working on a project. And Grammarly is the digital writing tool you can always rely on to get your message across clearly and effectively. You can sign up for free and it's really cool because you get real-time spelling and grammar checks as you type. And if you want more advanced real-time feedback on tone or word choice, punctuation, sentence structure, style, and more, then check out Grammarly Premium. It's the perfect writing tool for anyone who wants to stand out with every word. Harness the power of Grammarly on every platform with their desktop editor, browser plugin, and mobile app so you can improve your writing on your favorite places like Gmail, Twitter, LinkedIn, and more. And Grammarly doesn't just correct your mistakes. It helps you build up your skills as a writer and makes you feel like a writing pro. My team and I have been doing lots of outreach to major publications and bigger guests, and we want to make sure that we look professional and our message gets across clearly. Grammarly Premium has really improved how we communicate our message in an engaging way. In fact, it suggests other vocabulary to use and other ways to rephrase things so that it's more concise. Plus, I love that it works across all the platforms we use like Gmail, Google Docs, and Slack, so it's super convenient. Get 20% off Grammarly Premium when you sign up at Grammarly.com slash DreamJob. That's 20% off Grammarly Premium at Grammarly.com slash DreamJob. G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash DreamJob. Bombas make socks that reconsider traditional designs to become even more comfortable and look great for whenever you need with a wide variety of colors, patterns, lengths, and styles. What I really love is that these socks don't only keep you comfortable, they also give back to the most vulnerable members of our community. And as a result, Bombas customers have helped donate over 34 million pairs of socks and counting to be distributed nationwide through a network of over 3,000 giving partners. How amazing is that? I love my Bomba socks. They're hands down the softest, comfiest socks I've ever worn. Every time I put them on, I feel like I'm actually treating my feet to something good. And best of all, this company does good for the world. So there's no reason not to support them. Give a pair when you buy a pair. Get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com slash dreamjob. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash dreamjob for 20% off your first purchase. I don't know how you have the bandwidth or the time to do as much as you do, but you created this incredible podcast, which is so fun to listen to. And it's so interesting. And there's a new season, which everyone should listen to. So what made you want to do this particular show, Revisionist History? My best friend, Jacob, was running an audio company. He told me that I should do a podcast and I had never (laughs) thought about it before. So I was like, ah, why not? Sounds like fun. Thinking it would be two months and then we'd never do another one. Right. But then I sort of fell in love with it. And I decided to call it Revisionist History. And the tagline is, you know, we look at things that are overlooked or misunderstood. But basically, that's just an excuse for talking about whatever I want to talk yep. about. There's no... I got that. Yeah. The shows are all over the map. They're just like, in this season, I have an episode. It's half about the 9-11 memorial and half about this group in Jacksonville, Florida, that deals with the homeless. It sounds really, really random when I describe it to you. I think it works. But um, I have another episode, which was it ran already, which is all about this uh, guy, an American who goes to Bolivia and tries to convince high schools there to choose their student councils by lottery, not by election, on what he learns. 
It's just stuff, you know, every December or whenever I start thinking about, well, what weird things have I encountered over the previous six months that would be fun to explore? Um, and so I've now done five seasons of Revisionist History, and it's all that. It's just, it's just weird stuff Malcolm thinks about and is obsessed with and wants to know more about. And then the listener and I go on the journey. It's been insanely fun. I mean, it's the most fun thing I've done in forever. And that's the word I use to describe it. It's so fun to listen to you. And it's so fun to listen to you having fun. And you're really such a natural star. Like, I love hearing you. Like, it's fun to read your books because they're so juicy. But listening to you playing is like, in and of itself, just like such a Willy Wonka chocolate factory experience. And then you must have loved podcasting so much because you created Pushkin. Like, you have your whole network what made you want to do that? You have so much to do. What made you, what, what is it about podcasting and that experience that you were like, I want other people to have this experience and I want to have a whole thing. Well, Jacob approached me again and said, should we set up our own shop? I tend to just do what Jacob says. Um, but it was something I'd never done. So I've been a solitary, a writer as a solitary person who works alone. And then when they're done, they hand it over to someone else and that's it. And with podcasting, for the first time in my life, I'd worked in it with a team um, when I started Revisionist History, and I really liked that. I'd never done that. And then I thought, well, the ultimate expression of creating teams is starting a company. And what happens when you start a company? Well, you go out and you just hire people you want to work with. Yeah. <laughs> and that just struck me as being such an insanely cool <laughs> idea. And starting something from scratch with my best friend and this hiring you know, we collected this kind of little community of, and I mean this in the best possible way, weirdos. I'm one of them. Quirky, kind of interesting people. And I said, like, let's just all get together and like do our own little weird, quirky thing. And like, you know, we did our little statement of principles. And really, really high up is like, we should be having fun. And if we're not having fun, we're wasting our time. Like, the point of this is to enjoy ourselves and hopefully make enough so we can, you know, pay the bills. But we don't ever want to be in a situation where it's drudgery. And so far it's been super fun. We're having, I'm having a meeting, a kind of COVID friendly meeting at my house upstate on Thursday for this team. We're working on an audiobook that comes out of revisions history. And, you know, we could just have a phone call, but like, it wouldn't be fun. Yeah. We're going to sit at a table in my backyard and we're going to like blue sky about this really cool thing. We're doing and I, I'm looking forward to that. That's going to make my week. That's awesome. All of these things, when you're writing, when you're podcasting, you're, you're such a storyteller. You're so good at that. What's your advice to people who would love to have one half of one ounce of your success in writing and telling stories and podcasting? What, what do you think makes that work? Well, we're all storytellers. The problem starts, though, when people are asked to tell a story in something other than conversational mode. You know, I don't know a single friend of mine who can't crack me up with some tale from their life. But for some reason, if I ask them to write it down, yeah. or I ask them to perform it, they can't do it in the same way. Yeah. And to my mind then, the problem is solving that issue. What has to happen for someone to translate the same success they have in casual conversation to some more formal setting. And I think this is especially true of kids. You can sit down with an eight-year-old and they can read a book and they can tell you why they love the book, 
But then when you ask them to write a book report, you'd think that they hadn't read the book or they didn't like the book or they're, you know, so it's about bridging that gap. And some of that is about practice. Some of it is about understanding that telling a story in a more formal setting is not different. It's the same process. So to the eight-year-old or the 10-year-old who's writing a book report, what I always say is, just tell me the story the way you told, like writing is not some totally weird specialized thing over in the corner. It is just the written version of what you have been telling me face to face for the last 10 minutes. In fact, I always think one day I would love to teach a writing class to kids and I would make every kid tape themselves telling the story and then transcribe the tape. Yeah. And that's where we start. And then just clean up the transcription and then see where we are. And then, Talk about, well, how would we make it better? Or where did people laugh? So did you want them to laugh there? Or is there a way for us to make them laugh even harder? Yeah. Right? Convince them that they already have what it takes. They're just putting up these barriers to, to performing in another genre. It's so great what you just said. I think people are going to get so much from that. When Seth Godin was here, uh, he said, people get writer's block, but people don't get talker's block. Yeah, you know, exactly just, right. Just talk, just speak it out. And he also said, he goes, 50% of my blog is below average because that's what average means. Like just practice, just keep doing it, right? It's kind of like what you just said as well. I think part of the problem that comes up and as we're summing up, this is one of the, the main pain points for my audience is it's already been done. There's no room for me. I'm an imposter. These people are better. Why would I write a book? Why would I say a podcast? What do you think about that phenomenon? Yeah. Everyone I meet struggles with that. I had a friend when I was just starting out as a writer and I was in my early twenties and she was very, very intelligent and she had read everything. And she would say that to me. And I remember in the beginning, she discouraged me. And finally I realized that she was wrong. And it actually, I'm sad to say, we ended, the friendship did not survive this because I realized I can't be who I want to be with that voice in my head. That is the single most destructive thing you can say. And it's profoundly not true because what people forget is the story you're telling may have been told before, but it wasn't told by you. That the fact that you're telling it makes it different. So think about how many different conversations I was obsessed with this Netflix show called Jiri Haji and made all my friends watch Jiri Haji. So I've now had conversations about Jiri Haji with 10 different people. All of us are talking about the exact same television show, right? Why do I keep having conversations with Jiri Haji then about Jiri Haji? Because every conversation is different because there's so much there. No one ever says, oh, Malcolm, I don't want to talk to you about my feelings about Jiri Haji because I know you've already had eight conversations with eight other friends about Jerry Hardy. No one says that because they understand, oh, no, no. Malcolm wants to know what I think about it. And my take is going to be different. You know, so why don't you have that same confidence about everything? You know, it's one of the reasons why I try really hard to read things by people who I disagree with. Because it's really, really important and interesting to learn what some random person who you wouldn't ordinarily talk to is saying, even if you disagree with everything they say, it's just really valuable to figure out, oh, that's what that person thinks. And on some percentage of occasions, when someone gives you their 
idiosyncratic version of a common story, you gain some really, really important insight into that person. Something about their own personality yeah. or history or interests causes them to absorb something in a different way. Yeah. And all of a sudden I have insight. I was like, oh, Kathy's different from me. And this, you know, suddenly I see you in a new light. And that's, that's the magic in friendship is when we can find a new way to appreciate the people around us. Oh, that's so beautiful. And that's going to help people so much to look at it through those lenses. You're so generous. It's really a blessing. Tell us where we can follow you and find you and listen to your podcast and just be around you. The only thing that matters is my podcast, Revisionist History. Easily found wherever you get your podcasts. You know, Twitter is dumb. I wouldn't recommend anyone follow me on Twitter. Twitter is dumb. <laughs> um, I do tweet from time to time, but largely about track and field and not much else. But uh, yeah, just uh, and all the other Pushkin podcasts, we're very excited about them. But um, I have a particular warm place in my heart for Revisionist History. Well. I can see why you do. And we'll obviously put links to it and we'll share it and people are going to love it. Thank you so much for being here and being you. Thank You're you, awesome. Kathy. You too. Okay. You were have you the, too. <laughs> have the best day. I will. Okay, bye, bye. Bye, Malcolm. Oh my gosh. I really still can't believe that I had the honor to hang out with him. What an absolute treat. Okay, here are the takeaways. Number one, if the process is fun and meaningful, you can't lose. Number two, Hamlet was wrong. Accepting that you can't know the future doesn't trap you. It frees you up. Number three, take your feelings seriously, but also investigate them. Number four, the process of coping with our flaws and weaknesses can be a much more valuable experience than capitalizing on strengths. Number five, take your audience on the journey of what you're obsessed with. Enjoy yourself. It's insanely fun. Number six, we are all storytellers. Your story has never been told by you, and that's what makes it different. And number seven, there's a magic when we can find a new way to appreciate the people around us. Okay, I want to try a new segment. So on Instagram, I've been going back and forth with you guys, answering your questions. So I want to read you some of the questions that were asked and some of my answers. So one of the questions was, how can I shift the guilt around charging in exchange for serving? And my answer was, would you feel guilty if you can save someone time or help someone overcome something or help someone be healthier or help them achieve more? It's about focusing on what you're offering. And then you'd actually only feel bad if you kept the value to yourself. The second question that I was asked recently was, what are the right questions to ask after someone says no, so you don't feel pushy? And my answer was, you could ask, how can I best be of service? What are you struggling with? What do you need? What have you tried? What has or hasn't worked? And then you can see if you can truly offer a solution. And if not, you could maybe refer that person to someone who could. Another question I was asked is, what is your go-to activity to push yourself past disappointment if you hear no? And I said, prayer. Prayer seems to help because I remind myself that I want things to work out for the highest good. So whatever is truly best, I trust that I will be led to the right opportunities and the doors that are going to close will be for my ultimate good. So I hope that gave you some new food for thought. And when it comes to dealing with rejection, when it comes to sales, when it comes to serving the world, come on over. You can ask me any of this stuff. Um, I'll be on Instagram every day at kathy.heller, Kathy's with a C. And I will be there to interact with you, answer your comments, give you some feedback. So come on over, let's hang out there. Thank you guys so much for listening. I know that there are so many things you could be doing with your time. And I'm wondering if today's episode inspired you. Did it? Did you like this episode? If you did, can you think of one person 
who might be interested in this conversation, who might want to hear more about Malcolm Gladwell or more about what he has to say. If so, take a second and share the show, share it with someone and go ahead and subscribe because we have so many awesome episodes coming up. In fact, Rob Lowe is going to be here in just a few days and it's free to subscribe. So tell your friends. And if you go ahead and do share about the show on Instagram and you tag me at Kathy.Heller, I will repost it. I will send you some love and I'll be choosing a couple of you to give you some awesome swag. I already did some winners and I'll be choosing some more winners and I'll be sending you a spiritual gangster hoodie and a candle from Veluspa and a Meredith Quill necklace just to say thank you so much for sharing the show. I love you guys. I'll leave you with a song of mine and I'll talk to you on Thursday. The podcast is a production of Authentic. For more info on advertising in this show, visit AuthenticShows.com. Like a soldier